All right, just by way of review very quickly so we can all be on the same page. Um, Chapter 1, of course, begins with uh, greetings from Paul and Timothy, and of course is written to the church at Philippi, the Christians there. And after making the customary greeting, uh, he, of course, thanks the Philippian brethren because of the fact that they were partners in the spreading of the gospel. Uh, He goes on in verse 8 and talks about how that of all the places that he'd rather be, if he could get out of prison right now, he wanted to be with the church at Philippi because of the great love that he had for them. And the things that he wanted for them are discussed in verses 9 uh, through 11. And then last Wednesday night, we began a section that began with verse 12, where Paul starts the verse by saying, I would ye should understand, brethren. There is something that he wanted them to understand, something that he wanted them to know without a doubt. And what was that? Just so we can kind of get our minds back to where we were. All right. Uh, Evidently, somebody, when they sent Epaphroditus to see Paul, uh, when Epaphroditus arrives, one of the main things he uh, conveys to Paul is, the church at Philippi wants to know how you're doing. Uh, They were concerned about his condition. Uh, They, of course, were many miles away, and uh, they knew Paul was in prison, and, of course, being in prison is not a very pleasant thing, and They wanted to know, you know, how are you doing, Paul? How are you dealing with the situation that you're in? And so he's writing them back now, and he's saying, I want you to understand something. Regardless of my situation, the gospel's being spread, and that's the most important thing. In fact, in verse 13, um, he brings out the fact, the King James Version uses the phrase, all the palace, but we decided that this more correctly would be talking about Through all the what? All right. The word you're looking for is praetorium, and and it's it's the imperial guard. He says, even though I'm a prisoner, the gospel is being spread through the guards. And we know from later on in the book of Philippians that that means that even extended into the household of Caesar. The guards there were talking about um, this apostle Paul. And we spent some time talking about how that might have taken place. And verse 14 brings out the fact that even though he was in prison and he kept preaching and the gospel was being spread, this caused the other brethren in the city of Rome to be more confident in talking to others about Jesus Christ. And that leads him to bring up a a little short discussion about the fact that uh, there were some in the city of Rome who were preachers, and they were even preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were using it for their own advantage to... um, politic against Paul, to tear Paul down. This was done all out of envy and uh, the fact that for some reason they were uh, jealous about the Apostle Paul. And we brought out the fact that um, the church was already established uh, in Rome before Paul ever got there, and there may have been several congregations. Uh, It's interesting, when Paul wrote the epistle to Rome, in Romans chapter 16, he names 24 different Christians by name who are already in the city of Rome. He sends them greetings. And so if 24 was just a small sampling of all the Christians that were in Rome, that makes you appreciate the size of the church at Rome at this time. And so there was probably several congregations. And there evidently were some preachers who were jealous of Paul, and they were uh, saying some bad things about him. But the Apostle Paul shows his character in this particular book because he basically says, I don't care what 
other people say about me. I don't care what their motives are. The most important thing to him was what? Preaching the gospel. And that Christ was being preached, that's all that mattered to him. Even if these preachers had the wrong motives, as long as they were preaching the truth, he didn't care. In fact, he, we stopped at verse 18, around verse 18 or, eight, or verse 19 last week. Uh, after making that point, he says these remarkable words. He says at the end of verse 18, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. He says, I'm rejoicing now, and I will continue to rejoice. In spite of the fact that I'm in prison, in spite of the fact that there are preachers who are speaking against me, I just find more and more reasons to rejoice. And with that particular thought in mind, he begins in verse 19, piggybacking, if you will, on this idea of all the different reasons why he has to rejoice. And so in verse 19, where we stopped last week, or last Wednesday night, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we talked about there was something human going on here and something divine going on here. On the human side, there were saints that were praying for him, uh, for his salvation, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, was supplying all his needs. We even talked about how the word supply there means an overwhelming supply. Uh, One thing we didn't talk about that we ran out of time on, though, in verse 19 There is a lot of discussion among commentators what he means when he says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation. What is the salvation he's talking about there? It could be several possibilities. See if we can figure out what someone might be. Yes, Michael. All right. Heavens for one. Obviously, when we talk about salvation, uh, salvation, spending eternity in heaven. But this particular word, and this is why commentators differ on it, can mean leaving the city of of Rome. It can mean getting out of prison. It can mean a a couple of different things. So the question might be asked, what is he talking about here? Is he saying, um, there are people who are praying for me to get out of prison. The Holy Spirit is providing me a way to get out of prison. And the salvation that's being talked about here is, is getting out of prison. And you'll read different writers, and they'll say, well, that's probably what he's talking about. But I tend to believe that what's being talked about here is his actual salvation. I think it fits better with what he said before, and I think it fits better for what he says afterwards. Um, he's rejoicing. He says, I'm rejoicing now, and I'm going to rejoice in the future. Why am I rejoicing? Because he has salvation. And not only does he have salvation, I have people who are praying for me that want me to be saved. And I have the Holy Spirit who's supplying me that wants me to be saved. And then when he goes through the rest of the chapter, he's not, he's not confident, about, so confident about his release. He talks about whether I die or whether I, I'm free, it's all going to work out. So he must be talking about something beyond the here and now. Uh, there are, but I'll be honest with you, there are some commentators who will disagree with that, that he's talking about his deliverance or salvation um, from, from prison. But I um, really want to get into our lesson now in verse 20, now that we're kind of caught up with everything that we want to talk about. But 
Verse 20 says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. A bunch of things going on here in this verse. First of all, this is a little side note here, and, and uh, this won't be on the final exam, but I think it's kind of interesting. The phrase, earnest expectation. Does anybody have anything different in their translations? Eager expectation? Anybody have anything else? Anxious expectation? Okay. This particular word in the Greek, until we see it right here, had never, ever been seen before. A lot of people think that the Apostle Paul made this word up. It's a combination of several different Greek words all all put together that basically literally translates this way. My head is straining toward this hope. So a long word, apocalypsis, something like that, okay? And it's a word that's never appeared anywhere before until right now. And so people think that Paul took several Greek words and combined them together to emphasize the point that he is making. He is not just, he doesn't just have an expectation. Um, His hope is not just a, a hope like anybody else's hope. But he takes, he wants us to picture in his mind that not only is he, uh, leaning toward this particular hope, but he is straining his neck. He's, his entire focus is looking toward this particular goal. And so he was looking through his Greek vocabulary, if you will, and he couldn't find a Greek word that fit what he wanted to say. There wasn't a single Greek word for confidence. There wasn't a single Greek word for hope that he could come up with that Raleigh conveyed how confident he was in the fact that Jesus Christ was going to save him. So he basically made up his own word, a combination of different words of of neck and head straining toward a particular goal. And that shows you the confidence that he had, that he knew that God was going to take care of him, that that, um, he was going to be straining toward the goal, if you will. So he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified. Now, think about that for a moment. He was putting his confidence in the fact of his salvation, and he was so sure of that confidence that he says that in the future, I am not going to be ashamed, that I'm going to be able to speak with boldness as always. Now, what does that kind of tell you about Paul's thought process here? All right, think about this for a moment. He's writing back to the church at Philippi. He's he's telling them that they were wondering about his condition. He's assuring them that even though he's in prison, that the gospel's still being preached, even in his bonds. And even if people are speaking bad about him, uh, he's going to rejoice and he's going to keep on rejoicing. Uh, he's, he's confident about his salvation, and if a man's confident about his salvation, what is Paul saying right here? 
All right, very good. In fact, you mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The thing they kept telling the king was, our God is able to deliver us. Uh, Our God is able. Yes, sir. You can take that to the bank, can't you? And also, I I think that he is also uh, reinforcing himself here. I look at the phraseology in this. He's reminding himself that he can keep on doing this. Uh, You kind of get that flavor where where he says, and nothing shall I be ashamed. You know, he's saying, I'm going to be able to keep on doing this, but that with all boldness, he's he's almost saying, as I write them, I'm writing myself and saying, you know, you can keep doing this, Paul. Uh, every time I stand up in the pulpit and, and preach a sermon, I'm preaching to the, the, the people that are there, but I'm also preaching to myself. And that's kind of like what's happening here. He's telling them, I can do this. And Paul's turning around and saying, I can do this. Um, because, it, it, you know, this was a constant thing that he had to deal with uh, being within prison. But as Jeff has mentioned, Um, He goes on and says, so now also Christ shall be uh, magnified in my body. Now, here's, go ahead, Chris. Absolutely, absolutely. If your confident expectation is in heaven, then no matter what this life throws at you, it really doesn't matter. Um, Not to wear this illustration out because I've mentioned it a couple times, but not too long ago I was talking to somebody who was just really struggling with some of the things that were happening in the world as far as um, terrorism and that kind of thing. And they were saying, well, what if so-and-so happens? And what if so-and-so happens? Or what if this is the case? And they were just really struggling with it. And I, I pointed out to this person, well, if you're a Christian, what does it really matter? If somebody was to come in here right now, a terrorist, and gun each and every one of us down, If we're in a right relationship with God, what does it matter? It's awful. There'll be people who will miss us. There will be newspaper stories that are written about us. We'll probably be on television about the great tragedy that took place. But if we're in a right relationship with God, it really doesn't matter to us. We just got to heaven earlier than perhaps we were expecting. And that's the kind of faith that's being talked about here. But let's dwell on this idea that we sometimes don't think about. We read it and pass over it, where it says, So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. The word there literally is me be made bigger. And the King James uses that phrase, uh, uses that word because we they don't have magnifying glasses, but that's a good way to look at it. Uh, we call a magnifying glass a magnifying glass because when we put it over an object, what does it do to it? makes it bigger. Now, so what is Paul saying? How can one magnify Jesus Christ? How could he magnify Jesus Christ? How could he make something that is already the biggest thing there is? How can one make that bigger? Share it with other people. If you can put the mind of Jesus Christ into other people's minds, that it wasn't there before, what has happened? It's been magnified. You want to say something, Michael? Oh, okay. You just—I thought I saw your hand come up. I see another hand over here. Okay, Jeff. All right. Any time that we can make Jesus Christ bigger, we have magnified Him. 
Now, of course, the impossibility there is that Jesus Christ, we personally can't make him any bigger than what he is. But we can make him bigger than in other, persons, other people's hearts. The more people who follow Jesus Christ, the more Jesus Christ is magnified. The more time that we get more people, including ourselves, to worship him, the more he's magnified. Now, now you've got to have a question. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure because you were doing the same thing you did before. And so if we could put it this way, boy, this Jesus Christ that Paul follows must be a big deal. He must be a big deal if he's willing to do all this for him. Yes, Tony? Yep, he's making Christ bigger and bigger. I like that. Uh, both songs are good songs, but Paul's not singing, Tempted and tried, we're all fast to wander. He's singing, I love the Lord, he has been so good to me. And he's singing that while he's in prison. He says, I'm rejoicing and I'm going to keep on rejoicing. But notice how he brings this home in the latter part of the verse when he says, Christ is going to be magnified in my body. And then he says, weather. Now, he's not talking about this weather. He's wanting us to see a contrast of what could possibly happen to him. And regardless of what possibly could happen to him, there's only two things that can happen to him. Either way, Christ is going to be magnified. What's the two things? Life or death. Either I'm going to be given life. In other words, uh, Caesar is going to let me go. My appeal to Caesar is going to be uh, answered. It's going to be not guilty. I'm going to set free. Or Caesar is going to say you're going to be put to death. But Paul says either way, whether I live or whether I die, Christ is going to be magnified. Now, if he lives, how is he going to be magnified? More teaching. Absolutely. He'll be magnified because more people will know about Jesus, and therefore Jesus has been spread into more hearts, and he'll be bigger again by being magnified. What about if he dies? He gets heaven. I agree with that. But from the standpoint of Christ being magnified, He was not just a prisoner who was executed. He would be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Martyrs are powerful. Even today, uh, the U.S. government has to be very careful that when they carry out some kind of attack and kill an uh, uh, ISIS leader or somebody, they need to be careful that that person does not turn into a martyr because martyrs are powerful as far as driving people uh, uh, to do things. And so he's saying... If I die, I become a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm going to make an impression upon people that I was willing to die for this. Um, Those people who try to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a hoax, he just swooned on the cross, or because of the medicine they gave him in 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 the stuff that he drank made him pass out for just a little bit, or maybe his wounds weren't as bad as he was and the disciples resuscitated him and he really didn't rise from the dead because he was never dead. It was all just a hoax. I don't know too many people who are willing to die for a hoax. But all the apostles except for John all died a martyr's death. And talk about trying to carry out a lie to the point that your head's cut off, that just don't work too well. So he was real. And the martyr's death was real. And I thought I saw a hand over here. All right, go ahead. Absolutely, good point. We're thinking a lot. Yes, Jeffrey. Life or death. And that's, that's the, he's going to drive this point home a little bit more later in this particular uh, section of Scripture. 
but if I, if I live, I'm going to keep on living to magnify Jesus Christ. And if I die, my death is going to keep on magnifying Jesus Christ because my death is going to leave an example. And that's basically the theme of this book, that Paul decided no matter what his situation is, he's going to rejoice because he's magnifying Jesus Christ. A good point. And then in verse 21, he makes a very famous statement that we're all familiar with. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am a straight betwixt the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He says a lot there. First of all, he's, he's, he's going back to what he just said in verse 20. As I told you before, Paul his, his consciousness and the way his thoughts work through his epistles is he'll make a statement and he'll kind of piggyback on it and, and, and cause him to go down the road he wants to go down, expounding on what he says as he leads to other thoughts. But after saying that he's going to be uh, the magnify Christ's body, uh, magnify through Christ through his body, whether he's living or dying, he goes on and makes the point, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what does he mean by to live is Christ? Absolutely. Um, when Christ was on this earth, every, I mean, when G, uh, Paul was on this earth, his entire life was centered about J- Jesus Christ. And as he continued living, it was all about Christ. Um, Christ gave him a new life. Uh, Christ was his strength in this life. Christ was the reason for his life. Everything about him was Christ. In fact, this same apostle says, I, will, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what he means there. But as Chris also said, that if he died, he gets the greatest gain he's ever had in his life. Once again, think about where Paul is. Think about what he's dealing with. Think about where he'd rather be. The uh, whole point of this letter, he's telling the church at Philippi, I don't want to be here, I'd rather be with you. And so death would be a release. It would be uh, getting out of prison in the best possible way. Um, heaven is a gain for any person, of course, who is a Christian. And he wants them to understand that if he stays here on this earth, Well, that's fine, because he'll keep doing what he's been doing for Jesus Christ. But if Caesar says, off with his head, which eventually that happens, he's able to, hey, um, is able to uh, also go to heaven. So he's fine with that. But then in verse 22, I'll make sure we run out of time. In verse 22, he says, but if I live in the flesh, uh, this, of course, will be the fruit of my labor. But I don't know what I want to do. Uh, he says in verse 22, I, choose, I shall choose what, what not. And he's basically saying there, if, if God and Jesus Christ put before Paul, Paul, here's your choice. You have the choice of either staying where you are in prison or you have the choice of going ahead and die. In other words, Paul, we're going to give you the permission to decide what your fate is. 
Do you want to go ahead and um, be put to death? Or do you want to keep living in the situation that you're in? Now think about that for a moment. If, if God, of course the text doesn't say this, but if God appeared to him in a vision and said, Paul, we're leaving the decision up to you. Whether you stay here in this life or you be put to death and go to heaven, the decision is yours. What did Paul decide? He says, I can't answer the question. I don't know what to choose. He's in a conundrum. He's, well, literally, as the text says, he's between a rock and a hard place. Verse 23 says, for I am a straight betwixt the two. The word there for straight pictures in our mind a Greek. Paul being stuck between two rock walls. That's literally what that word means in the Greek. He's got a rock wall here and he's got a rock wall here. On the other side of the rock wall is living for Christ here on this earth. On this side of the rock wall is him dying and going to heaven, which is his game. And he can't turn either way because he can't make up his mind which is the better way to go. Well, that to us seems kind of ridiculous because if we... We were in terrible situation. If our life was in prison or whatever, we think we would choose, well, let's go ahead and go to heaven and be done with it. Paul says, I can't make that decision. And as Julie alluded to, it's because of this. He says, having a desire to part and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. What was causing him not to be able to make that decision? Here you see the unselfishness of Paul. He was writing this letter to the church at Philippi, whom he loved so very much. In fact, he loved them so much and wanted unselfishly to help them in so many ways that if it meant delaying him getting to spend eternity in heaven, he was willing to do that. Talk about self-sacrifice. Here was a man that... The possibility of being released from his bonds in this life and going to spend eternity with Christ, yet he understood that there were people who still needed him. And so he was stuck between two hard places. He didn't know which way to go. Michael, I think I saw your hand next. In the same way that uh, we mentioned earlier that the, on the human side, the Philippians were praying for him, and on the divine side, he had the Holy Spirit. In the same way, the Holy Spirit would be saying, Paul, we're in charge of this whole situation. God's in charge of the world. And Jesus Christ and God can have an outcome of how Caesar's going to, to do this. It's happened in history before. Um, what's God's plan? Whatever God's plan is, if, Caesar, if God's plan is to let Paul live, then... Caesar's going to come out with that verdict. If it's God's plan that Caesar's going to execute Paul, then that's God's plan. And we've got to understand the close communication that Paul and God had. Absolutely, but yet Paul and God still have a decision to make. Um, we always leave everything up to God's will, but we're praying. When we pray, do we not have a choice in what we want to pray for? Do we have a choice in how we want things to come out? We may say, we want this person to get better. That's what we want. But still, we depend on your will, God. It might not be your will that this person gets better. I saw Eric's hand next, and they'll go to Chris. 
Absolutely. And I think that, that uh, you know, coincides with what he says earlier in verse 20, where he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Um, he's talking, you know, he, as I said, he was not only talking to them, but he was also talking to uh, himself. You know, I'm, I'm at this point now, and I want to keep being at this particular point. So, um, I, I agree with you 100%. Yes, Chris. And, and, and understand that this is a conundrum that's in Paul's mind. It's not a conundrum in God's mind. God knows what's best for Paul. He, knows what he, he already knows what's going to happen to Paul, and he's in charge of the situation. But it's Paul who is expressing himself to the church at Philippi. He's wanting them to understand and appreciate the fact that I love you so much, and it's needful for me to be here. I'll even forego heaven for a while to stay with you. I want to go to heaven. But at the same time, I understand and appreciate that you need me here. Tony, then Jeff. Absolutely. And, of course, it's almost become trite because you've heard people say it so often. Um, We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And that's kind of like what Paul was saying here. Um, We're running out of time. I do want to make one final point before we get too far away from this, and we'll come back to this because there's so much good stuff in here. Um, Think about Paul for a moment, and think about the fact that here is somebody who was ready to go to heaven, and he was ready to go to heaven right now. If it was, he didn't know what he was going to choose between the two, that's what the the point of the verse, but make sure you understand that one of his choices was going to heaven, and that's something he really wanted to do. He wanted to go to heaven, and he wanted to go to heaven right now. And whenever I think about that, I think about the fact, how often do we think that way? How often do we think, I wish I could go to heaven today? Usually what we do is, yes, I want to go to heaven, but I really don't want to go right now. Because of the fact that, let's face it, there's loved ones on this life that we want to spend more time loving. Uh, There's activities that we enjoy that we want to keep on enjoying. Uh, There's other things in this life that kind of hold us to this life. Um, uh, Maybe it's some goals that we haven't reached. Maybe it's some things that we haven't done. Uh, maybe uh, some experiences that we haven't experienced that we're looking forward to. Maybe it's some vacation down the road. Maybe it's some uh, expectation of a family member achieving some gold. There's a lot of things that tie us to this earth. And we do want to go to heaven, but yet oftentimes we do not want to go right this minute. And that's the point that Paul is making, the point that we should have the same kind of faith that heaven is surely worth it all, and if I had the opportunity to go today, I would go right this very minute. Because there's nothing in this life that should be worth holding us back from experiencing the joys that have been given to us that's been prepared by Jesus Christ. Chuck, did I see your hand? Okay, absolutely. And I thought maybe you were going to bring up the old illustration about somebody loading up a bus to go to heaven, and and I can't remember how it goes now, but it's popped in my head. I have to go back and think about that. But somebody says to the point, well, I didn't know you were taking a crowd right now. I'll catch the bus later or something to that effect. But anyway, Janine brought it up. But my point in this, of course, is the fact that, that we... 
we have so many strong ties to this earth, and that has an effect on us as far as our wanting to strive and, and be in heaven. But the example of the Apostle Paul is, of course, here that he was ready to go to heaven right now, that nothing in this life was holding him back. Now, the difference between you and I and Paul is this. Paul was in prison in Rome. He wasn't in the best of situations. And I dare say, even on our worst days here on this earth, we're not ever going to be in a situation like the Apostle Paul. The problem we've got is, we've got it so good here on this earth that we really don't think that heaven could be much better. Oh, we say, well, we like to go to a place where there's no more heartache. We like to go to a place where there's no more tears, where there's no more problems. But all in all, living here in this country with the material wealth that we enjoy, it's really not that bad. People back living in the time of Paul, they were willing to die for Jesus Christ. The world wasn't a pleasant place. They were poor people. Heaven was something that they earnestly looked for. In fact, um, one of the th ways they would greet people, when they saw people, they would do the holy kiss, or today we'll say they shake each other's hands, and they would say, Maranathema, which means, Lord, come quickly. They were so ready for Christ to return that they had it in their speech every single day. We might today say, Lord, looking forward to you to come back. Don't come back today. I got an appointment at 3 o'clock, and, and I'm going to have a good meal with so-and-so later on that day. And, and so can you hold off at least till tomorrow till we get through this day? That's not the way the Apostle Paul was. He was ready to go to heaven right then and there because he knew it was a far better place than this world we live on now. But our time is up, so we better stop. Thank you so much for all your comments. <clears throat>